Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Dr. Anjali Cohen, a senior lecturer in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Sydney. Anjali is the author of Youth, Culture and Identity in Northern Thailand, Fitting In and Sticking Out, published by Routledge in 2020. Youth, Culture and Identity examines how young people in Chiang Mai construct their identity through consumerism, symbolic boundary making and subcultural capital. It argues that these so-called deviant practices such as drug use and the engagement in gangs, are not necessarily pathological responses to changing cultural forces, but rather ways of producing and reproducing culture. In elaborating this argument, the book makes the case for foregrounding youth agency in our attempts to understand how youth culture works. Welcome, Anjali. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Anjali, I'd like to start by asking you, what brought you to write this book? Well, I've had a long-standing interest in Chiang Mai due to my Thai background. Um, my mother was born in a small market town about 30 kilometres southwest of Chiang Mai City and my father, who is an Australian anthropologist, has been doing fieldwork in northern Thailand since the 1970s. So I travelled to Thailand a lot uh, as a child and each time I returned to Chiang Mai, I was struck by the, the rapid pace of development, particularly since the 1980s, uh, when Thailand was transformed from an agriculturally oriented export country to an industrial export country. Um, and this, it, the impact that this had is particularly visible among young Thai, especially with regard to you know, the burgeoning consumer culture that had emerged after Thailand's economic boom. And I felt that it was important to write the book because, you know, a few studies have actually explored the social and cultural practices of young Thai people and Thai youth subjectivity in the context of, you know, these rapid socio-economic changes. I should note that the other thing that led me to write the book was also my interest in the growing popularity of methamphetamine use in Thailand from the late 1990s. So just to let you know, methamphetamine is an amphetamine-type stimulant um, and it's also known as Yaba in Thai. So Yaba translates as crazy drug. And Thailand actually has one of the highest rates of use in Southeast Asia and it has become particularly popular among young Thai people. Now the problem is that most studies on methamphetamine use in Thailand and drug use more broadly have been dominated by quantitative studies which draw most of their data on drug use from um, law enforcement agencies or treatment settings. And they tend to focus on problematic use. And I wanted to move away from this and understand why methamphetamine has become 
you know, young people's drug of choice from their perspective, as well as explore the, the social and cultural context of use. So you've talked quite a bit already about Chiang Mai, but I was interested uh, why you, you look to Chiang Mai rather than, say, Bangkok as a suitable field site for this kind of study. Yes, well, Chiang Mai is a thriving multi-ethnic and cosmopolitan metropolis that's located in northern Thailand, and it's the third largest city as well in Thailand. Now, Chiang Mai is a particularly interesting place to study youth culture because of the rapid pace of urbanisation and modernisation that has taken place since the 1970s. And this was stimulated by growth in manufacturing, rising tourism, the expansion of educational facilities and advances in transport communication that has actually linked Chiang Mai more closely to national and global markets and this socioeconomic transformation and educational expansion has had a significant impact on the lives of young people because it's led to increased youth mobility. So although the majority of northern Thai people still reside in rural or peri-urban areas, many young Thai people um, in northern Thailand are now commute to the city for work, study or leisure. Now, the other reason why Chiang Mai was a good site for my study, is its close proximity to the Golden Triangle, which is the region encompassing Burma, northern Thailand and northern Laos. Now, this region is the main source of methamphetamine for the Thai market, making methamphetamine more accessible, uh, readily available and more affordable to those in the north compared to other regions. And so it's perhaps no surprise that methamphetamine use is particularly high in northern Thailand. Okay, thank. That's a great explanation for why Chiang Mai is the perfect place to do this study. So when you were there for your field work, what was it like being a young person in that city? Well, being young was, I have to say, I mean, at the time for me, it was, it was really fun and, and, and exciting as it is for, for many Thai youth. Um, there are many opportunities now for young people to socialise, be it at a cafe, milk bar, shopping malls, fast food restaurants, nightclubs, bars, night markets, and the list goes on. And the city really comes alive at night. Um, And there's loads of entertainment to keep young people amused. Because this is in striking contrast to my mother's generation when young females were not even permitted to wander beyond the village unaccompanied. Um, Now, parents now have less control over young people's movements and behaviour as young people are spending more time away from home and in the city. And, of course, this has caused a lot of anxiety for the older generation, particularly with regard to young people's sexual behaviour and drug use. But while many young people now have this sort of, you know, increasing independence and autonomy, I should note that many also feel a sense of disconnectedness and loneliness living in the city. And and this is why many teenagers have formed or joined youth subcultures because, you know, it gives them a sense of, of community and belonging. Angelie, in the book, you talk about the interplay between the local and the global. And I was interested, for one of these young people who's moved from the village, now lives in Chiang Mai, perhaps is studying, how are they accessing the global from Chiang Mai? Well, they are various Thai media and businesses, you know, fostered by economic development have been really crucial to youth cultural formation in in the northern region. The modern Bangkok lifestyles and consumer commodities that are are regularly portrayed in sort of Thai soap operas and television commercials, you know, have led to 
this real aspiration, I guess, for a lot of young people to be modern. And they were adopting as a result of the uh, media, social media in particular now, a lot of people are adopting uh, actually global youth cultural commodities. So in Thailand, it's not just when I say global cultural commodities, it's not just from the West, but also East Asia. So in Thailand, for instance, Japanese and Korean popular culture is very influential. And as I said, it's there, there is this real desire now for young people to be modern like their global counterparts. Another thing that you deal with in the book is the various youth subcultures in the city. Can you talk us through the main ones, what differentiates them and how they relate to one another? Well, the subcultures that I came into most contact with were skateboarders, Vespa scooter riders, brake dancers, BMX bike riders and punks. And these subcultures are referred to by Northern Thai youth as uh, deck inter. So deck is the Thai word for kid or child and inter is an abbreviation of the English word international. And these subcultures have very specific styles of dress, tasted music, meeting places and social practices. And many of the deck inter, they often come together at various venues and public spaces such as shopping malls and night markets where they, you know, display or perform their different styles and associated practices to the public be it dancing or skating. Now, one of the things that many of these deck inter have in common is their determination to differentiate themselves from deck sap. Just so you know, sap translates as to sting or to be sour in Thai. And this deck sap is actually a a sort of a derogative label that was actually created and used by uh, young Northern Thai people to refer to so-called backward rural youth who commute into the city in search of fun or trouble. Um, Their association with delinquent youth also means that a lot of the violent youth gang members are referred to as deck sap. Um, And I think this is really interesting because, you know, the need for teenagers to develop a label for delinquents who commute from rural areas to the city is, I think, a reflection of the broader social changes young people have undergone as a result of Thailand's, you know, economic transformation Um, And also young people's sort of aspiration to be modern, as many are defining themselves against this backward, rustic other. So within these different subcultures, how do they interact? Do they operate quite separately? I mean, you've talked about the derogatory tone in which they refer to rural youth, but within the urban subcultures that you've described, is there a hierarchy? How do they interact? How do they relate to one another? Yes, well, the deck inter do tend to interact with each other. They sort of see a commonality based on their, I suppose, adoption of global youth styles. And so they do see sort of a commonality and they'll often come together in certain public spaces. But, of course, they don't usually cross paths with the deck sap. As I said, they're determined sort of to define themselves against deck sap. So I was also wondering about whether there's a hierarchy within the intergroups. Definitely there is this youth kind of cultural hierarchy, uh, I found, and there tends to be, for instance, the deck inter being at the top, but even even within that sort of the deck inter there is kind of a hierarchy. And those, for instance, say punks, for instance, were tended to be sort of high up in, in the hierarchy. They tended to be associated more with university-educated youth. And then, you know, would sort of go down to sort of punks and skateboarders and then, you know, deck bike. But 
in general, the DEXAP, you know, that they were at the very bottom of this youth cultural hierarchy. And of course, I talk about this as a form of subcultural capital. So circling back to the question of the global and local, it sounds like there was quite a strong class basis, even within the deck inter. First, is that a a reasonable assumption? And if so, are the people at the top, the people who are in the education system and so on, do they have more direct access to global cultures or is it all mediated very much through Thailand? Yes, I think possibly they do. You've raised an interesting point because it is very much class-based and I think those that are more educated in many respects have greater engagement or access to global culture uh, just in part because a lot of them can speak English, whereas if you were to sort of compare them with so-called DEXAP or perhaps more of the working-class youth, they might not have the literacy skills that actually enable them to engage or access youth global culture. So let's turn back to the question of drugs now. Um, You gave us a very clear sense of where drugs fit into the picture in Chiang Mai, but how do they fit into the picture of these various youth subcultures? Well, drugs are also a way of differentiating youth groups and, and demarcating boundaries. So certain groups, for instance, have become associated with very specific drugs, for example, uh, ecstasy and crystal methamphetamine, which are more expensive than, say, methamphetamine pills. They tend to be linked with so-called uh, high-class or what the Thai call high-saw groups, while methamphetamine pills um, or yaba, they tend to be associated with the low-class youth or law-saw youth. Though in practice, you know, yaba use actually cuts across all classes and is, is very popular among a diverse range of youth. Um, so it really just becomes, uh, like I said, a way of distinguishing or differentiating groups. Now, methamphetamine also is used as a way of connecting with others and, and creating a sense of community. But it also helps young people keep up with the demands of a modern capitalist society. You know, methamphetamine is a stimulant that boosts energy and alertness. So in this respect, I see it as this ideal capitalist drug because it fits neatly with Thailand's new achievement and and consumer-driven society. For example, I found many youth using Yaba as a multi-purpose drug that is used for both pleasure and performance. Um, That might include work, study, sex, dieting, sport, um, and all kinds of recreational activities. And methamphetamine is also popular because it's seen as this clean and modern drug compared to, say, opium or heroin, which is linked with an older generation. Hmm, that's a very interesting link, isn't it, that sense of modernity even flowing into the drug culture. Um, you've talked very much there about the positive aspects of drug use for youth in Chiang Mai. And when you were setting up the book, you were telling us how many of the studies look at the negative impacts. Within your overarching positive picture, are there negative impacts for these groups with this drug use? Yes, that's a good question. There are, of course, negative impacts, um, but I found that tended to be those who who were problematic users, who were actually addicted. A lot of the people that I interviewed didn't see themselves as actually being addicted. They felt that they actually were able to control their use. But the problematic users, yes, there were problems with psychosis, but they tended to be more Like I said, people that were very dependent on the drug tended to use the drug in isolation and so were using it less as a social drug and it tended to be people that were actually using crystal methamphetamine, which is a more potent form of methamphetamine. So just to let you know that the methamphetamine that I was focusing on was actually methamphetamine pills and it's not as potent as crystal methamphetamine. 
Okay, so just to round out this discussion of drugs, how well was Chiang Mai equipped to support the users who did fall into difficulty with the drugs? Uh, well, they had set up treatment centres. They had a very, <laughs> the problem is one of my criticisms is the very punitive approach to dealing with drug use. So when I was there, actually in 2003, the former Prime Minister Thaksin actually declared a war on drugs and this actually involved military-style rehabilitation camps, compulsory urine drug testing in schools and, of course, drug users were sent to these treatment centres, which are very much like correctional centres, to be treated. And so I don't think that their um, approach to dealing with dependent drug users was particularly useful. In fact, I found that a lot of the users and those that I interviewed in drug treatment centres were often in and out of treatment centres because as soon as they actually got out, they tended to revert to drug use again. So I don't think it was particularly helpful. Um, You've been back to Chiang Mai a number of times since that initial long period of fieldwork. Have there been improvements in that system since or not really? Yes. Well, in recent years, they've taken more of a harm minimisation approach in theory, (laughs) Um, yet to sort of really see that in practice. But there is this idea that drug users should now be treated more as patients rather than criminals. So I think they're taking a slightly softer approach, but it's still a huge problem. I mean, methamphetamine is still a major problem in Thailand. So certainly... We're not seeing a decrease in use, let's just put it that way. And it's a problem that's facing governments everywhere, isn't it? The balance between managing drug use and and users' health. Um, Let's move on now to the final chapter, which looked at youth gangs. Can you tell us how these fit in with or are distinct from the youth subcultures you've been telling us about? Yes. Well, what sets the youth gangs apart from the global youth subcultures is their propensity for violence. But contrary to public discourse, this violence is, is not indiscriminate, nor is it due to cultural decline or some pathological response to dramatic social change, as many would argue. Um, I actually found that violence among male youth groups tends to be highly structured and reproduces these enduring Thai values of masculinity that emphasise physical strength, courage, fearlessness, uh, risk-taking, um, and in particular invulnerability, which is believed to be achieved through magical spells, um, tattoos and amulets. Now, I also think that male youth gangs are using violence as a way of reasserting gender boundaries. So I should note that young Thai women are becoming increasingly independent due to educational expansion and work opportunities, which is actually challenging traditional notions of Thai male superiority And I think many young males are feeling threatened by this, uh, particularly those with lower levels of education and limited career prospects. Uh, In short, I think that the proliferation of youth gangs in the North and their emphasis on stylized violence, such as Thai boxing and vulnerability, is a way of um, maintaining a masculine identity in response to these changing social and economic forces. And do girls have a role to play in the gangs themselves or are they just defined as the other? They do tend to be excluded and, yes, they tend to be sort of defined more as the other. Um, I found that actually just through participant observation when I was trying to actually witness, for instance, fights and 
you know, it was very clear to me that women in general were excluded for those kind of practices. And what also struck me as interesting is the way in which they perceived females. A lot of the gang youth I interviewed had certain expectations about how young women should behave and that there was this idea that they should conform to these traditional female roles, uh, you know, such as studying hard and dressing conservatively. And, uh, yeah, this was particularly interesting. And That's not to say that the girl, their girlfriends were necessarily those kind of girls, but that was the general expectation that they tended to have. Hmm, that's very interesting. Did you speak to some of the girls not associated with the gangs about how they saw them or was that beyond the scope of your study? Um, that tended to be, yeah, beyond the scope of my study. I actually met the, a lot of the gang members through females that were actually dating gang members, but I never really spoke to women uh, or young females outside of the gangs that I, that I actually studied. So within those girls who were the girlfriends who gave you entree into this world, how did they see themselves as fitting in? Um... I think, again, I think that they really liked dating gang members because of the fact that they did kind of feel protected when they went out. That was one thing that a lot of the gang members did do. And uh, even though they were excluded from social practices, when they did actually accompany them out to, say, just drinking at at a bar or whatever, they did feel this need to sort of protect the young women. And I think a lot of young women actually like that. And also just in terms of popularity too, a lot of people liked dating gang members because it actually made them perhaps more popular also with some of their friends, particularly if it was a gang leader that would afford them a lot of popularity and status within their own circles. So it sounds like it acted as a form of social capital for those girls in its own right. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I'd like to step back now and discuss some of the more theoretical and methodological concerns of the book. Over the course of my own work in the Rio Islands, I became very interested in the methodological questions around research into illegal activities. Can you talk us through the methodological challenges you faced working with drug users and gang members and how you dealt with them? Okay, well, I mean, firstly, it was it was definitely challenging during the early stages of my research because of the fact that I was dealing with illegal activities. So I'm talking about accessing drug users here. And of course, you know, this is in a country that has very punitive laws around drug use and trafficking. So, you know, it was very risky for both me and and anyone that was willing to speak to me about it. Um, And of course, there were a lot of ethical issues that needed to be considered as well. But that's why, you know, ethnographic research, which included in-depth interviews and participant observation, was essential because, you know, it allowed me time to build rapport and trust with drug users and, and youth gangs over a long period of time. Um, So my first field work trip was 18 months long and I first recruited drug users from a drug treatment centre and correctional centres where many of my interviews took place. But most of my research material was sourced from a dropping centre for former methamphetamine users and addicts called Ozone. And I hung out at Ozone over a total of nine months and established close relationships with a small group of members and staff who I spent a lot of time with drinking at bars, dancing at nightclubs, shopping and eating out. And the members I came to know intimately also introduced me to their own network of friends outside of Ozone. And this is how I came to actually meet and know members of youth gangs. But there were times when I went out with those youth gangs that were were definitely risky. There was only one time where I actually felt threatened, physically threatened or sexually threatened, Um, and that was by members of another youth gang who I didn't actually know. Um, But interestingly, the youth gang that I had come to know very well were were very protective of me. 
But other than that, that was the only time that I really felt, you know, threatened. And uh, because a lot of people, of course, ask that question, you know, you're dealing with drug users and, and, and violent youth gangs, and, you know, that's, that's incredibly risky. But, but surprisingly, you know, I didn't really uh, encounter any significant problems. For me, the biggest risk was actually riding a motorcycle <laughs> and trying to negotiate Chiang Mai traffic every day. Yeah, it's an interesting question, is it? And it's also a question about positionality in a different way. Um, when Lenore Lyons and I were working in the islands, one of the things we did is in Singapore, we asked travel agents, what can we do if we go to the Riau Islands? And they very firmly pointed us in the direction of the resort zones. And we sent in an older man, an older white man, and asked the same questions in the same agencies with the same people. And he was given very different answers. He was given answers about the opportunities to engage in sex tourism and all sorts of other things. So for us, being female made a really big difference. Clearly, your identity as a woman didn't stop you from doing this research but do you think it's research that you could have only done at a certain age uh yes I think as a lot of people pointed out to me had I been say an older sorry Thai male um I probably would have had less success in terms of interviewing people about drug use because a lot of people would have suspected that I was an undercover police so I think there were many advantages of actually being a foreign young female because um I was not really considered to be a threat to many of the users. Hmm, that's interesting. But of course, your foreignness is mediated by your your ethnic background, your your Australian Thai background. How do you think that played out? Yeah, well, I think that's a good point because while I was seen as this uh, foreigner that was sort of less of a threat, at the same time, it was really useful also being half Thai because that also helped me actually, I suppose, fit in, if you like. I was more accepted because I had some background knowledge of Thai culture as well, so it was easier for me to build rapport with my um, informants as well. So you weren't sticking out so much. That's right, yeah. To play on the title of the book. I'd like to turn now to some more of the theoretical points that you make. The concept of youth itself is a relatively modern construct, even in the West. How has this concept evolved in Thailand and what are its main characteristics today? Yeah, well, in the West, its use as a construct has largely been informed by psychological models of childhood development and socialisation theories which tend to see youth as a stage of human development. Young people are sort of seen as these incomplete social actors. And this model actually also informs Thai constructions of youth and the governing of of young people. You know, young people are seen as immature and irresponsible um, in need of both discipline and protection in Thailand. Um, However, in Thailand, I think moral models have even greater influence over the way young people are treated and governed. So just to fill you in, the Thai moral order sort of emphasises respect to hierarchy relationships that are centred on gratitude and respect for seniors and moral obligations, you know, based on one's social position. And, of course, the, the transgression of these moral boundaries causes much social anxiety for the uh, Thai elites and middle class. And, in fact, concerns about young people's wayward and uncontrollable behaviour actually led to the social order campaign in 2002, which imposed a range of strict sanctions on young people with the aim of controlling their, their moral behaviour. Hmm. So it sounds like there's quite a, an opportunity for tension between the concept of Thai-ness and what it means to be Thai and how young people navigate their identity in this increasingly globalised world. You've talked a bit there about how the states tried to mediate this. How have young people responded? Well, I think it's important to note that they don't necessarily just accept these sort of the Thai discourses on Thainess. 
Thais are definitely reproducing many aspects of Thainess. Just to give you an example, you know, the Thai youth gangs, for instance, they're reproducing aspects of local culture by drawing on see, these enduring sort of Thai values and masculinity. But their expressions of local culture are very different, almost antithetical to state discourses on Thainess. So what I actually found is that the Thai youth are through various social and cultural practices, then they're not only reproducing aspects of Thai culture, they're also transforming it along the way. So, you know, even though they're influenced by global youth styles, they take on new meaning in this sort of in the local Thai context. I give one example, for instance, of the Thai B-boys, you know, or break dancers who adopt sort of African-American rapper handshakes whilst reserving the traditional Thai salutation for greeting senior group members. So what we're really seeing is this process of glocalisation, if you like. Mm, That's very interesting. I mean, of course, another concept that relates to that that you deal with quite a lot in the book is the concept of community culture and the debates around it in Thailand. What are those debates and how do they relate to your study? Well, the community culture discourse emerged really in the mid-1980s among idealist graduate students that were searching for alternatives to large-scale development and it suggests rural development can be achieved through self-reliance and the collective cultures of the traditional community village. Now, many scholars have actually criticised the community culture discourse for its idealistic image of the village community, and many suggest that a natural village community in reality doesn't exist. But I argue that this may be the case for some parts of Thailand, but in northern Thailand there was actually a strong sense of unity within northern Thai village communities based on common residence, kinship, cooperation in farming, as well as Buddhist and animistic beliefs. Of course, this has radically changed with the commercialisation of agriculture, industrialisation and urbanisation. But this is not to say that community has simply been replaced by individualism in the new urban environment. The problem, I think, with the discourse on Thai community And when I say the discourse on Thai community, I'm talking about also the state discourse on Thai community, is that they tend to equate community with the rural village. And as a result, then they neglect newer forms of community in an urban context. Um, So I argue that while old community boundaries centred on village social structures in northern Thailand may have eroded, new community boundaries have been symbolically constructed. Um, And I think the, the formation of new subcultures is a good example of this. Hmm, very interesting. And of course, this brings us to the key theme of the book, which is the question of youth agency. You've noted that this concept has been understudied everywhere, but especially in non-Western contexts. Can you tell us a bit about the scholarly literature on this question? Yes. Well, you know, after the late 1980s, there was growing anthropological attention to popular culture and globalisation, which began to generate an interest in youth. But prior to this, most studies on youth more broadly, were influenced by dominant psychological models of childhood development and socialisation theories, where young people were simply depicted as these passive receptors of adult culture. And I found that this was the case with most studies, Thai studies on youth as well. So to date, most of these studies have focused on issues such as, you know, rites of passage, gender socialisation, or courtship practices, which all still underline youth as this transitional phase. So, you know, my work on Thai youth, I think, contributes to this sort of emerging body of studies in anthropology that have moved away from a concern with adolescence as this life cycle stage 
to an interest in youth as active agents um, or cultural producers. For example, I show how Thai teenagers or Chiang Mai teenagers construct their own worlds and the ways in which they actually socialise each other rather than how their lives are are shaped or socialised by adults. So, I mean, I think that the other important thing is that in regards to theory, many of the other studies on youth culture have typically come out of sociology and cultural studies. And, and much of this research tends to focus on also Western youth subcultures or subcultures in the context of deviance or resistance. But I actually show that Thai youth subcultures don't necessarily use style as an act of caste-based resistance against the dominant culture as, as, as typically understood in academic discourse, but rather as a means for fitting in and, and sticking out in an effort to avoid anonymity in the city. In fact, one of my main arguments is that many young Thai are not necessarily rebelling against the dominant consumer society, but are actually longing for greater engagement with it. And of course, this is especially the case with methamphetamine use. Well, I think that's a a really good place to leave our discussion of youth culture and identity in Northern Thailand. But just before we wrap up, Anjali, would you like to tell us a bit about what you're working on currently? Sure. Um, Well, my current research is quite different to um, my previous research on youth culture. I'm currently actually looking to sort of understand Thailand's remarkable success in controlling the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 to its current failure to do so. The other thing that I'm interested in looking at is how primary healthcare in Thailand deals with stigmatised illnesses, including mental health issues and problems relating to drug use. That sounds like a very ambitious research agenda. Anjali Cohen, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss youth culture and identity in northern Thailand, fitting in and sticking out. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you'd enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out many of the hundreds of other podcasts on Southeast Asia on the channel. Those interviews are available directly from the New Books Network site, or you can download or stream them free of charge from any of your favourite podcast apps. 